Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really, really appreciate it. As always, you guys are really doing a great job. Please keep up the love and the support. What's the best way? Let me ask you all this. What's the best way that you can help support the podcast? Uh, if you if you said that to rate, subscribe, and share, then you're absolutely right. You're absolutely on it. That is the best way to help support. Uh, the podcast so please make sure that you do that share it with your friends your neighbors your co-workers uh and everything like that make sure that you tell everyone to tune in to captain hunter's podcast it's available on itunes or apple uh, google uh and wherever uh podcasts are available iHeartRadio, spotify any other place and if it's not just make sure that you send me a line cptlhunter at gmail.com that way i can uh, do what I got to do to make sure that it is available on those particular platforms. Make sure that you're following me on Instagram, Facebook. Do a live show just about every Monday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That is the aim. That is the goal. A lot of different guests. Uh, we also have another segment, which I'm going to start releasing very soon. Uh, some uh, messy entanglements. Uh, some friends of mine had asked me to uh, talk about and get into relationships uh, and so uh, we call it Messy Entanglements. So uh, I'm going to restart releasing the audio versions of those as well. Really, really good stuff. I have a co-host for that, Miss Aisha. Uh, we have a lot of laughs. People uh, call in a few times. I respond to the comments that are going on during the Facebook Live, in which we do that. And those are every other Wednesday. Uh, no really set formula. Just once again, if you're following me on Instagram and, and Facebook, Twitter, uh, then you'll know when the announcements for those come up. Uh, so I asked, what's the best way to uh, support the podcast? Let me ask you a trick question here. What's the second best way that you can support? If you said through financial means, as far as cash, cash app and Venmo, CPTL Hunter or PayPal, CAPT Hunter, then you are absolutely correct. Make sure that you do that. Uh, and uh, also through the Patreon page as well. Become a, a, a member of the Patreon page. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. I really, really need and would love your financial support as well to keep this podcast going and growing. Head on over to HunterPoliceTraining.com, HunterPoliceTraining.com. Make sure you pick up a copy of the book, Police Reform, A Retired Police Captain's Perspective on Evolution of Law Enforcement in America and How to Improve the Criminal Justice System. Uh, that I'm trying to get that onto Kindle and other ebook platforms. I'm hoping to have that. The situation settled by the end of the week. If not, I have to go to another uh, service that's doing it. I'm doing a self-publish through lulu.com. So you can head over to the website that'll uh, hunterpolicetraining.com, and that will link you to uh, where you can purchase the book and also take a look at my other services. Uh, you can head over to lulu. That's lulu.com. You from there you can purchase the book as well. Uh, if you live kind of close to me, send me a message and I will be more than happy to uh, uh, site, give you an autographed copy and also a little bit of a discount on the price as well. Um, also, if you're just a friend of the show, you want uh, a copy, um, and be sure to hit me up at the email cptlhunter at gmail.com, cptlhunter at gmail.com, and uh, I'll be glad to send you uh, some copies. Uh, notice I said copies. Make sure you order some for your friends and neighbors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I do have a few uh, spares at the house. So, um, 
Today's episode is a live episode that we did and uh, with Miss Dr. Tahari Jackson. It's a third timer. She's becoming a regular and she writes such good pieces for a medium. Um, and she's, you know, just such a great blogger, does a lot of anti-racism work and uh, diversity and inclusion in uh, training instructor and belonging to diversity, inclusion and belonging uh, uh, instructor. Doing a lot of great work. And so after the riots happened, at the Capitol, uh, she came on the show. Really, really pleased about that. And we talked about hypothetical racism. So, what is hypothetical racism? It is the thought exercise that uh, Black people do uh, whenever something happens to another group of individuals that we believe or we know. <laughs> depending on who you talk to, we either believe it, or we know it. We, we, ha- <laughs> you know, it's a hypothesis. You know, uh, that if we had done similar instances, uh, we would have been shot, stabbed, killed, uh, arrested. Uh, and treated in this, in this more severe of a manner. So, of course, after the riots, after uh, the uh, uh, or after the, the riots at the Capitol, the storming of the Capitol on January sixth, uh, she wrote a piece uh, for Medium.com, and I reached out to her, um, and she was, of course, once again so gracious and kind to come on the show and give us her her thoughts and her wisdom. We had a lot of laughs. Great, great episode. Make sure that you follow her on Medium. Uh, she is working on a website, so we can't push that right now. But uh, so, uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is the interview, the Facebook Live episode that I did with uh, Dr. Tahari Jackson uh, about hypothetical racism. So, all right. So we're we're live here. So <laughs> we're live, and I appreciate uh, you coming on once again. I really, really appreciate it, Doctor Tari Jackson, um, who was just chastising me before we came on. <laughs> I, I, chastise was not the word I would choose. Not I, the word. I was posing a question. You're posing a question. question. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, I'm gonna. I'm going to take your words of admonition to heart, and I appreciate that. <laughs> so, Dr. Tahari Jackson is back. What is it? Third, fourth time? I, I can't. Third. This is third our time. third. Okay. All right. So it's like an every six month thing. I got to have you yeah. back on here because there's there's some somewhere some somebody's acting a fool, and if <laughs> I I could I could trust that if somebody's acting a fool somewhere, then Dr. Tahari Jackson is going to write about it. I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what I literally write is that racism doesn't sleep, so neither do I. <laughs> so, yeah. And you write that, and you write that in your in yeah. your in your um articles. Yeah. You, you said I, I was laying awake sleeping at night. And I'm like, yeah. this girl's got a lot of sleep this night. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the heart of the meal uh, of what we got, I almost said heart of the meal here. Heart of what we're going to talk about here. Tell us what you've been going through, what you've been dealing with. Uh, how was your holidays? Uh, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, you know what? Actually, that's um, that's actually wholly relevant. Um, so part of what I needed to do over my holiday vacation uh, was quite literally to regather myself. Um, not only do I experience sort of like the firsthand racial trauma of what it means to live in this country as a multiracial mixed with black woman, but I actually get paid to talk about these issues. So there's nowhere for me to hide. There's nowhere for me to rest. 
when things like this happen, I will often write an article and then immediately people, you know, like you will say, oh, can you help us, you know, understand it? Or can you craft a statement or can you help us come up with a plan? So I am busy this year in a good way because this is my business. Um, but I'm, I was also uh, exhausted and I also was suffering from racial battle fatigue, which we can talk about later. So during the holiday, um, I have one sister, um, actually two, uh, but, but my one sister who lives in the United States who does not have COVID-19, we actually got away and went to a wellness retreat. Um, I was able to, to do yoga. I was able to participate in a digital detox. I didn't answer a single phone call. I wasn't at my computer. Um, I, you know, I, I just, I, I was able to just focus on myself for a moment. And then as soon as I came home, I got to deal with all of our other problems. Um, but I had a really a fantastic holiday. And then I literally came home. And then a couple of days later, uh, the, the terrorism at the Capitol happened. So I appreciate your asking me about my holiday and what I've been up to because I've been trying to rejuvenate because I'm trying to avoid um, racial exhaustion, uh, injustice, exhaustion and um, burnout. But uh, but here we are. Here we are, Captain Hunter. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> just when we thought, just when we thought 2020 couldn't was the worst year, you know, here comes 2021 and punches us right in the mouth, right? I mean, just, <laughs> or kicks us in the face, as I like to say. <laughs> yeah, kicks us in the face and the teeth, whatever, whatever. What, what, so, somewhere along the line, we had been assaulted by 2021. <laughs> literally, so, literally, literally, we had been assaulted. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you get back here and yeah. you see this this nonsense that's going on that took us all by surprise. Mm -hmm. um, I was it almost kind of was like a 9-11 moment for me because people were calling me up saying, hey, are you watching the TV? You know what's going on in the news? I'm like, no, <laughs> but I will. <laughs> so I turn on the news and I see this nonsense, people, you know, pushing past cops. And I didn't see the, the original president's stoking up of the, and I'm dying to see that. I can't find it anywhere. I, I'm sure they took it down. Um, and then I see, you know, all the, all the chaos at the, at the, at the, uh, at the Capitol. And, um, so I, you know, uh, people don't want to hear me, but they want to hear you. What were your thoughts when you saw this foolishness going on? So, you know, if, it, if it's okay with you, I'd like to just sort of back up actually to the night before. Absolutely. Um, not. Absolutely. Yeah, not. I, well, no, I'm going to back up because it's relevant to the story. So my apologies for being so intransigent, but okay. No, so, uh, so, now I got to go look that word up. Okay, okay. okay I got to go look that word up. Obstinate is a good word. Oh, uh, that's me. another word. Okay. So part of the reason that I actually started my, my most recent article, uh, the one about hypothetical racism this way, is that there was a stealing of thunder that we need to talk about really quickly. So the, the Black people and the black women of this country have been saving Democrats and saving elections since the inception of this country. They saved Joe Biden, they saved us from Roy Moore, and now they have saved us from um, having uh, Mitch McConnell be the Senate majority leader. He's gonna now be with the election of John Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock, we have now flipped power in the Senate. So thank you, black people, <laughs> thank you, black women, um, for doing that. So I was actually up the night before this all transpired, just watching history unfold. And you need to know that that's the first time I've watched the news since June, because the news racially exhausts me. I can't watch Kyle Rittenhouse be out drinking beer with the free as F t-shirt on. I can't watch the man in Iowa City 
who plowed through a group of racial injustice protesters evade prison time and get his record expunged within three years if he's on good behavior. I I can't do that anymore. I, I, I don't watch the news anymore, but I did take the time to watch the black people and the Democrats of Georgia and Stacey Abrams and her hard work pay off after all those years of having been robbed of her own election. So the first thing I want to say is what I really wish we were talking about is, you know, how hopeful I was. And I, I wish we could talk about Raphael Warnick and I wish we could talk about John Ossoff. But Listen, this is, right, this is your show. You could talk about whatever you want. To talk. Know, I just, but then right after that. Right. So then. Right. So then I was up all night. I think I went to bed at like five o'clock in the morning, um, worked all day. And then and then my sister sends me an alarming message about how, you know, she works at a, at a community college and she said, oh my God, I'm sad and I'm mad and I'm scared. And we had a meeting about this and they were in a chat and, uh, you know, and, and there's Trump rioting. And I was like, Trump rioting? You know, I had been in meetings all day, so I had no idea what she was talking about. So I, I went to the news because I just I just sort of was like, oh, maybe there's a riot somewhere in, you know, uh, any town in America. And I turned on the news and I did not realize whether I was watching a deep fake or whether I was actually watching the news. Um, and what I saw was uh, the complete antithesis of what I've been seeing all year long with the anti-racism and Black Lives Matter protests in all 50 states and around the world. What I saw was literally a group of white mobsters and literal terrorists and uh, insurrectionists take over the Capitol in a matter of hours and just literally do it almost effortlessly. Right? Like just sort of, I didn't see anybody get shot. I, I didn't see pepper spray. I'm sure there was some, maybe I didn't see tear gas. I did not see people, you know, shot on the spot. I didn't see police in riot gear. I didn't see special forces for insurrections and coups. I mean, literally, I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I think lots of people are starting to use that word. So I didn't see what I just saw for the primarily peaceful protests that just start that that we just uh, you know had for Black Lives Matter, it was a totally different response, and I was immediately traumatized by it. But part of the reason I wrote the article is because I couldn't figure out what the thing was that I was feeling. Um, I knew I was angry. I knew I was. I wasn't surprised. I knew I was. I knew I was disappointed, but I'm never surprised. And I knew that I was incredulous. Like I, I just I couldn't figure it out. And then that's when I decided to write the piece on hypothetical racism because it's a form of secondary trauma, right? We deal with everyday racism and anti-blackness every day as people of color in this country. But now as an overlay to my everyday racism and everyday anti-blackness, now I have to experience what I'm calling hypothetical racism. And that's too much, that's too much. So so that's how I was feeling. And I know we can talk about the particulars of the article, but. Um, I mean, I wasn't, I'm always um, disappointed, but I'm never surprised. I literally was not surprised by what happened because um, Trump has been stoking that tension for all four years. Um, and we saw white people do what white people do, which is to be totally free in a country that is not free for everyone else. So that's what I saw. And so this is the article that you wrote. Yes. Hypothetical racism, the trauma we feel when white terrorists go home and innocent black people are shot on the spot. And so, so you saw all that, and this is, it's only in Medium, where's where that article? 
Oh. Yeah, it's I'm, I'm my web developer and I haven't finished my website yet. So pretty sure pretty soon it's actually just going to be a blog on drtahari.com, but okay. right now it's uh all of my writing except for one article uh is on uh, is on Medium. There's an article that I wrote about video classism that's on LinkedIn, but this one these the other ones are on Medium under Dr. Tahari. Okay. Very good. So, let's let's talk a little bit about the article there. You you kind of uh vented a little bit and so what and what i do appreciate this time um is that i saw cnn and uh, talk about the apparent lack of disproportionality between the response between the black lives matter protests and what happened this time mm -hmm. um and so I appreciated CNN doing it, but I think it was Van Jones who talked about it the most, black mm -hmm. guy. And, you know, they were talking to 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 other uh, black people or persons of color when they were having these particular discussions. What is it going to take for white people to talk amongst themselves about our own disproportionate responses to certain things? What, in your mind, what, what's that going to take? What's that going to look like? Yeah. So, you know what I, so my research background is actually looking at how to get people from empowered groups like white people to become advocates and allies and accomplices and activists for people of color. Right. And so the one thing, so I, I wrote up a little hope sheet over here because I always like to end on a positive note, but one of the things that I'm really excited about right now is the momentum of the moment. So what I witnessed this past year, in addition to a virulent spate of lethal anti-blackness and lethal ra racism, what I also witnessed was that everyone was outraged by the same thing at the same time. So what I love about this moment and what I love about the perfect setup from this previous year is that white people who ordinarily literally have the daily privilege of not considering their identity, not considering their interactions with police and not considering their white privilege, which is sort of, you know, the water that they're surrounded by if they were a fish. It's like, oh, I, I'm just breathing. But then as soon as you pluck the fish out of the water, it's like, wait, wait, where's my water? Where's my water? Right. The one thing that I think that sort of plucked white people out of their 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 surrounding water of white privilege was looking at the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, but then also the ensuing lack of consequence, right? So I think that those deaths, those murders in police custody, they perfectly set us up for last week where white people were watching other racist, other racist white people storm a Capitol with little to no consequence. And they saw that, and even Republican white people, even other Trump supporters were able to look at that and say, wait a minute, I am witnessing gross racial disparity, right? Because this is a perfect experiment. A perfect experiment is where, you know, you can sort of test out two different scenarios and see if they see and sort of measure the facts, whether they're going to be different. So we just saw the experiment this past summer of primarily black and brown and indigenous and people of color out, you know, literally protesting police brutality. Can you stop killing innocent, unarmed black people? That's why we're out here. And by the way, we're gonna kneel, we're gonna put our hands up. We just wanna be out here with our Black Lives Matter sign, but we're just literally protesting the thing that you do to us when we're not guilty of anything. That's what the protests were about. And then white people go, 
And they literally are protesting election results. Stop the steal off with their heads. I mean, really kind of, you know, crazy stuff. And uh, and other white people and other Republicans and other Trump supporters who are reasonable were able to look at that and say, you know what? That is white privilege on display. That is today what I, I heard it called uh, from one of my friends, um, Baratude Day Thurston. He was on on MSNBC with Brian Williams. And he said that was a white privilege jamboree. Like that, that is great. That was a white privilege jamboree. And that that phrasing is perfect. So one of the things that I think that needed to happen has already happened. We had a precursor for outrage from all the other uh, murders and killings of black people who hadn't done anything. Oh, I don't know, like go to sleep and just be in bed. Like, yeah, dead with no consequence. Right. A settlement, but no, no criminal charges. Right. So I think the first thing that needed to happen was that that white people sort of needed to be outraged. And I think they are like I think everybody is outraged by the same thing at the same time. Do you, oh, hold, hold, let's pause there for a second. Do you really think that there's, that they, that they understand the outrage to the level that you and I would understand it according to your article, the hypo, do they, you think that they put themselves in the hypothetical, hey, you know what, if I was, if I, if I was actually black doing this, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, I don't think that they think that. I think, I just think that they're outraged that these people took over the Capitol. Oh, it's a lot of pearl clutching going on. Oh, heavens to Betsy's, you know, these people are taking over the Capitol. But they're not outraged. As a, and listen, we're all outraged about that. Black people are as well. But but we, we have an additional, again, <laughs> we have an additional outrage that, yeah, exactly. Okay, we're all outraged. We all have this baseline. We're all outraged that they, people took over the Capitol. I mean, that's just nuts. But then we're like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> if we would have took over the Capitol, we, you know, they'd still be picking up our, our bodies. You know, I don't think that they see that. No, no. I mean, so, I mean, to your point, that was actually a pretty, I was a fantastic and nuanced question because that's literally why I wrote the article. I was like, there are multiple levels on which we can all be outraged. Okay. But then there's a level of escalation and an additional layer of trauma that, that people who are not black or indigenous or a person of color, they're not going to get that. Right. So the first layer is I'm outraged as a U.S. citizen. Uh, this is something that you might expect in what people would call a banana republic or some well, other another racist term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some other <laughs> people are like, oh, I would expect that in some you know developing country, and it's like, no, no, no. This happened in the so. First of all, I think it was politically embarrassing, and I think it was it was politically outrageous. Right, that was an assault on democracy. That was an assault on a on an election that was free and fair. And that was an assault on, you know, a building and an edifice and, and the, some of the highest offices of the land. So just as, an, as a U.S. citizen, we people were outraged. The other people who were outraged are people who vote, right? There were no, irrespective of, of for whom you voted, there were voters who looked at that and thought, wait a minute, what? Like, you're going to take an AK-47 to the Capitol when I stood in line for 10 hours to vote? because there were barely any polling locations open. I don't think so, right? So voters were outraged, right? And then there was an additional layer there too of like, again, minority and black voters who always save elections and who always save Democrats. And there's a great op-ed about that, by the way, uh, by Taylor Crumpton in the Washington Post. And it's called, um, Black People Always Save the Democrats. Don't make us do it again. And that was published on November 7th of 2020. So, so people should read that too. But, but I mean, so, but, but getting to my, my finale point, um, I wrote the article because I not only had to witness a travesty uh, as a U.S. citizen, as a voter, as a black woman who tends to save America in elections, 
but also as a black person who believes in anti-racism and anti-oppression and knows full well that if those races had been reversed, we would be picking up bodies off the street, watching images of people, of course, across our, our, our news stream saying, oh, this person was killed. They were a firefighter. They were a policeman. They were whatever. It, that, that outcome would have been totally different. And part of the reason that I take time to write this twice in the article, um, that, that we would have been shot, we meaning people of color, especially black people, we would have been shot at the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> like, let's be clear, because during Black Lives Matter protests, there were police in riot gear all along the stairs, right? Nobody was getting up the, those stairs for Black Lives Matter protests. We would have been behind the barriers, right? Because what we learned, especially from when Donald Trump sort of cleared the air and terrorized people for a photo op, what we learned is that <laughs> you can actually peacefully and legally protest and still get shot, still get tear gassed and still get harassed. So, I mean, I, I just, I made a point of writing that twice because it's like, you know, understand what I'm saying. We wouldn't have even made it out of the part that you were legally able to protest in. Like we get killed in bed at home. So we would have gotten killed behind the breaching lines. And we most certainly would have gotten shot on the spot, executed on the street um, at the bottom of those stairs. So I think that there's a layer of hypotheticality that white people and other people who aren't of color can't appreciate because in their mind, they don't experience enough everyday racism and everyday anti-blackness to understand that white people literally get away with murder every day. That was just a different day. So I, 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 that's why I put that in the article. And that's, that's primarily why I wrote it because I, I was doubly traumatized, actually triply traumatized. I was watching this on my television, which is a, an, a, an upset to American democracy. I am a person of color, right? And I know full well that this election was valid and I know what they're trying to do. And number three, I'm, I'm part black. I'm a multiracial mixed with black woman. And I know full well what would have happened if those people had primarily not been white. And so I had three layers of trauma and that needed to be described because other people have that too. And it is completely unfair, completely unjust. Your second level of trauma there, you uh, believe you talked about um, what they're really trying to do. I think that was the phrase you said. What yeah. do you think that they're really trying to do? Let's put on our political hats and mind reading hats and see what 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 was the real purpose of their storm in the capitol well to be quite frank um it wasn't just to put their feet up on nancy pelosi's desk and to carry out her lectern happily. or smoke, or smoke weed in there yeah, yeah, yeah oh my god I, I don't yeah i mean who knew right i mean i guess things possible right so i the the primary function of that i think was even within that sort of what they were really trying to do they were trying to number one demonstrate that that white people are truly free in this country um, one of the things that I talk about uh, in my writing and in my everyday work is white freedom. I think privilege sometimes is a trigger word for white folks because they're like, oh, it means somebody gave me something that I don't deserve. I mean, that's still essentially true of unearned advantage, but I think that that semantic leap is hard for them. So one of the things I talk about is white freedom. White people are free to roam about this country and globe without fear of racism. That is part of, that's what racism is. The freedom to be white all the time and to do whatever you want and, and essentially not get, uh, not be punished at least in the same way that someone else would. So they were free to express their um, disgruntlement with having lost an election. They were free to go, I mean, let, let's juxtapose this with the Lansing, Michigan scheme, right? 
they felt free to go and take hostages, kill Gretchen Whitmer, who was the governor of Michigan, and take over this, the Michigan state government, right? Like, that's my right. They called themselves a militia. They, right? So, so I feel free. I'm going to exercise my Second Amendment rights to carry a gun, to brandish this sucker, to wield it, to literally have an entire plot to overthrow a portion of the government in the United States. That's punishable by death, right? That's punishable by death. So what I thought uh, people were trying to do the other week was to say, I'm free to do this and I dare you to stop me. And nobody stopped them. Nobody stopped that brazen show of white freedom. And the second nuance to that is they are trying to overturn, right? They are trying to dispute a free and fair election. They are trying to reverse the hard work of people like Stacey, Adams, uh, Stacey Abrams. They are trying to reverse the hard work of people like me who drove her ballot to the election headquarters with crutches and a boot and, <laughs> and an injury. Like, I mean, I, people like me, went, people went through extreme measures, especially this year and this year's presidential election to make sure that we didn't have another Hillary Clinton, you know, back in 2016 where even she you know she even got the popular vote and things kind of fell apart so people took extra special care to make sure that they cast their vote and had their democrat you know their democratic or republican or libertarian or write-in voice heard and what these people were trying to do was to say yeah but i don't like how that turned out and because i'm white and i don't disagree with the result i am free to go and challenge it violently you challenge it in the courts Challenge it in your, with your state election board. Challenge it in any other way that doesn't literally hurt people and kill them. But but when you have unfettered white freedom, you can challenge it violently and go home to your happy white life. And that is that is a travesty. That is an outrage. And that's what we saw last week. So your work focuses on changing that. Um, is it going to change? Do you think that they're going? You, I think you and I got into it last time. I don't. I don't think they're going to give this up. I don't. I don't why, why? Why would I give that up? Why would I give up? Why would I give up the ability to go into the Capitol in Washington D.C. where you can't walk around with open carry? Uh, and and, the, and these people are doing it. And these people are doing it. I mean, it's the whole thing is is so perplexing to many on so many different levels. I, I have someone else I'm going to be talking to. Um, uh, it's pretty soon, Michael German. We're going to talk about, you know, we're going to get into the nuances of, of the of the police failure uh, about that. That's more up his alley. Um, but, but yeah, um, just, just, they're not going to give this up. They're they not going to give it. They, they are going to give. It. They, they aren't. I mean, they're, you, you they have are. to pry. They are. Yes, they are. I, it'll be taken from them. They're not going to give it up. We, I ju we just saw what just happened. They lost an election and they're going nuts. <laughs> and it's not. And, and there's plans. And there's plans to continue going on. I mean, we'll get into this a little bit later. But, but go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you know, I, I actually interrupted you because I was I was picking an intellectual fight with you because I'm going to win this. So let me just tell you. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Let me roll up my sleeves here. Okay. <laughs> Okay, no. So, so here's the thing. Here's the thing, Captain Hunter. So, I uh, let me let me make sure I'm answering the question that you posed, right? Because I think that you are right in that there will always be a segment of white people and people of all color who buy wholeheartedly into white racial dominance. The notion that white people are inherently superior, the notion that white people should be in control and on top. 
that they should be first in line and first in place and first in charge, and that they deserve to have power and control based on what they have done here and around the world. I do believe that there are people who are firmly entrenched in that. And unless they come to my diversity training <laughs> or read my articles or, or, or have, you know, what's called, you know, conceptual change, they will remain fully committed to that no matter what. Right. So so I'm not I'm not going to be Pollyanna-ish and say, well, I'm every white person ever in the world is going to convert. No, I'm not. But here's what I am going to say. Here's what I'm going to say. You and I both know that there is nothing innate about hate. There is nothing in, in innately inborn about racism. That is a learned behavior. And I don't know if I'm biased because I used to be a teacher and a teacher of teachers and a professor of professors. But what I can tell you is that behaviors that can be learned can be unlearned. Anything can be that is manufactured can be dismantled. And anything that is created or made can be destroyed. So that's one thing. If we can help people not only unlearn the racism that they've absorbed from the smog in the air, but to learn other ways to, to show honor and dignity and respect to fellow human beings, I'm sorry, but we, we can do that. Like, like we, if we could just maintain what children come out with, which is just curiosity about other people, right? As opposed to hate and prejudice, I'm sorry, but we are eventually gonna win that war. But here's something else that I think you might find interesting. One of the next pieces I'm going to write is about um, what I call white infiltrators. And it's based loosely on this notion of race traitorship. Um, uh, John Garvey and Noel Ignatiev have an entire treatise on this. It's called race traitorship. But every time I go into an organization, I say, you know what? It should be easier to be anti-racist here than it is to be racist. It should be easier to be anti-sexist than sexist. It should be easier to be, you know, um, homophilic as opposed to homophobic, right? Like, so basically, if you're in a society where it's actually positively reinforced and easier to be racist and hateful, then we're doing it wrong, right? That's exactly backwards. So what I know is going to happen in the future based on the work I've done, based on the people I know and based on the hope that I have is that we are going to get enough white people and enough straight people, enough men and everybody who's in an empowered group. And they're going to say, you know what? I'm going to disrupt this ism every time I see it. If I'm an, a man, I'm going to disrupt sexism everywhere. If I'm a, a, a straight person, I'm going to disrupt homophobia everywhere. And if I'm white, and someone tries to intimate racism or tell me a joke or make a statement in a meeting, even in a high level executive level board meeting, I'm going to confront that. And I'm going to make racists so uncomfortable in companies and organizations and federal agencies and nonprofits and the entire country that at some point racists will have to hide the way that anti-racists do today. So I, I, to be frank, Captain Hunter, I, I have to tell you, I believe that there are enough white people, whether you want to call it a quorum or whether you want to call it, you know, a hard, I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I do know that there are enough white people who are outraged by just the recent events of the last year that they're willing to say, you know what? I am going to confront my racist family members and I am going to make better decisions at work. And we are going to hire and employ and train and promote black people and people of color because that's just the right thing to do. So I'm sorry, but call me overly hopeful, but we are going to have a good number of white infiltrators who do that. I, that's what I'm That's what I'm working towards. And that's why you're my ray of sunshine. <laughs> um, 
So you have been called, let's do a hypothetical experiment here. You have been called to address uh, Congress, the, the, the um, powers that be, um, and what would you say to them in order to prevent this type of thing from going on again, right? What, what, how would you address this? I'm not even sure who we would talk to. I just kind of said Congress, but do we talk to, I mean, some people have been fired from their jobs, bosses, uh, you, know, you know, what, but what would, what would be your message to these people to get them to mm -hmm. change their minds? And I'm going to just, two, two different things here. So not only the people who actually did it, but, but the lack of preparation is what has been, has been so astounding to people. It's astounding to me. And I believe that the that the chief of police for the U.S. Capitol Police was black, which I which I almost mm -hmm. fell out of my chair when I saw that. I, I think he resigned. I think he's since resigned. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to be prepared for what's going forward. I know this is going to be a long question here. So you're gonna you're, you're called in to talk to the people who stormed the Capitol, and you're called in to address the powers that be, whether it's the police, uh, in, or Congress, or whatever. And you're going to give your expertise. If you can just address that for us, please. Um, so you may not like my answer very much because because it's gonna. I know that you're a, a police captain. You're like, okay, the logistics. Right, right. But let me. But mine's gonna be just. A, my answer's gonna be a little a little different. And it's a tripartite answer. I've got three things here that I want to say. But I'll go try with these to big words. You and Chris Casey with these big words, man. I don't just, know Chris Casey, but I mean, so he's here. He's here in the chat room here. <laughs> your friend. Readers are leaders. Okay, so here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. I mean, I can't. I listen. I we okay. I, I have respect for 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 big words and and good lexicons. Um. So the first thing I would say is, I'm not a reactive leader. I'm a proactive leader. So my my first admonition to this country in general, writ large, is how do you prevent <laughs> racism? Right? How do you prevent? bold and brazen acts and even act literal, literal acts of domestic terror that are rooted in white racial dominance and racism. How do you prevent that? So the first thing I would say to them is, you're not going to like this, but listen, moving forward, because we are, we're already here, last week happened, moving forward, we're going to need federal and national investment in anti-racism and anti-oppression. Mr. President, you are President Biden, President-elect Biden today, but oh God, 10 more days, right? Nine more days. Uh, President-elect Biden, you are going to have to ha create a cabinet level position for Secretary of Racial Equity and Social Justice, because there needs to be a national presence and a national leader who can corral resources, who can start with the federal government, who can disseminate best practices for how we're gonna move the country forward with regard to how to educate people out of racism and how to incentivize both, both public and private industry to stop being racist in their policies, hiring, promotion, and even in sort of the marketing and all the things that they do, right? So the first thing that I would focus on is prevention, right? Federal investment in prevention. The second thing, Captain Hunter, and this is what I put in the article about hypothetical racism. It is too difficult to bring charges and to have someone prosecuted and indicted and to have them serve their sentence for crimes that are rooted in racism. So we thank God he chose Merrick Garland for attorney general. I mean, oh my God, that's I wanted to cry when I saw, you know, some of his picks like Benita Gupta and some of the other women that he chose to, to lead up the Justice Department. But we are going to have to do 
a serious uh, racial equity audit in justice and law and the and order. We are going to have to figure out where racist and literal Klansmen, you know, and people like that literally get away with murder, where they face lesser charges because it's too hard to prove that it was racially motivated. Right. So we've got some law reform and we've got some legal reform and we've got some judicial reform that we've and some legislative reform that have to make things harder, um, that have to make it easier, actually, to make sure we can prosecute and jail and 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 just justly punish people um, who who kill folks based on racism or people who do things based on racism. And finally, we are going to have to focus on restorative justice. Right. Even when we just think about last week. OK, first of all, what needs to happen for everyone to be made whole? Well, I mean, you know, bless the FBI. Right. They sent out some calls and said, OK, we don't really know who these people are. Could you help us? I mean, it's amazing that you don't know who they are, but like, you know, but that's a start. Right. So we're going to have to start holding people accountable. Right. We're going to have to um, we're going to have to make people whole so that when black people and people of color see what happens to the man who carried out Nancy Pelosi's lectern to the man, um, you know, I mean, to the, to, to the people who helped contribute to the deaths of Capitol Police officers and other people. When we when we do, when we focus on justice and make sure that those people are fairly punished um, and that we've got laws on the books that protect this from happening again, that's part of the response. I mean, I know you might be saying like, oh, maybe we needed tanks or maybe we needed more. I don't know. Like, I'm not a police officer. I don't know what kind of logistical and military grade weaponry you need to deal with the crowd like that, because you pull out all those stops for Black Lives Matter and you don't need it. So clear, clearly your planning is inverted. Right? That was too much. That was a too much of a show of force. This was nothing or not enough. So I, I'm not going to advise you on how many armored tanks you need, because clearly somebody else is going to have to figure that out. They, they can ask the new secretary of defense, who I think is a black man. Praise the Lord. But, um, but but Captain Hunter, I am a teacher and I am always going to focus more on prevention than remedy and more on being proactive than reactive. So that would be my answer. And I hope someone would listen. Uh, listen, I hope that they listen too. I, th I think that that was very much, very well, very well said. Um, Teresa uh, says uh, there will be another situation uh, around the inauguration. I was reading today that uh, on inauguration day, I, I believe that it is is going to be. They're going to have protests, or and I'm putting this in air quotes here, protests in all 50 state capitals, um, and uh, just, just you know, this is not this is not going away. One of the best things that I heard uh, some of these talking heads on um, CNN say is that, you know, they were asking the question, is this the end of something or the beginning of something? Sam Jones. Yes, right. that was. I'm, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, of the mindset that this is the beginning of something. I don't think that it's going to go away. Uh, they saw what happened. They being those people who protested or, or did the insurrection, sedition, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. uh, saw what happened with the people in Michigan and it didn't deter them. No. Um, when when they st when they stormed that house and also continued to make plans to kidnap that governor there, uh, it's not going to go away. This is this is I mean we we've we've cut off the stem but we have not uprooted the problem, right? Um, so I'd like to get your thoughts about that. You know, just pre preparation mentally uh, for for inauguration day. What, what's your what's your thoughts about that? 
Um, so my thought is that it's it's difficult to uh, to change the law, right? Like it takes time. So I know that in nine days, I'm not going to get a significant um, law change about what happens to people who overthrow the government based in part on racism, who commit race uh, based crimes, who are basically racial terrorists. Um, I'm hoping that that can be um, incepted, you know, right after um, President Biden is uh, is sworn in. But here's what I will say. Um, I, you know what, when we really want to protect something, we do. I live um, just outside DC and I specifically just, you know, up from Chevy Chase. And for years I used to watch the- Chevy Chase, the actor? Uh, no, uh, the, the city, the town, the, the place where you go and shop. Uh, <laughs> um, because what I was gonna say is I, there's a strip of, um, of commerce where there used to be a Jimmy Choo and I think there's a Tiffany there. There's a Saks Fifth Avenue. There was even a, another Saks across the street called Saks Jandal. And every time I would be driving home from, you know, from uh, the University of the District of Columbia, um, which is further down Connecticut, uh, farther down Connecticut Avenue, I would see all these police um, cars and policemen stationed outside the, the Louis Vuitton and the Jimmy Choo. And I thought, man, I, is there not any other crime you could be fighting? <laughs> like, you, I mean, it would be like 10 o'clock at night uh, or it'd be one o'clock in the morning because I used to take my students home after class. I mean, it would be one o'clock in the morning. It's like, oh my gosh, you're, you're up. You, there are four police cars and you're guarding luxury goods. Is, is there nothing, literally, is there, is there nothing else for you to do? So when, when we value something, we find the time, space, people, and resources to value it. If we value the installation of a fairly elected American president, we will figure it out. Um, president Trump was willing to, with the, the you know Secretary of Defense uh, Mark Milley, clear out innocent, peaceful protesters to go hold up a Bible in front of a church. That Upside down. That was essentially um, a military operation. He's been willing to invoke the military in any number of other things that he values, right? I mean, and he can do that because he's the commander in chief. So I think that if we got together as a country and said, oh no, we are going to make sure that both President Biden and both Vice President Harris are protected and not shot and not assassinated and not even bothered or air horned out or you know, music from cars drowned out. We're, if we truly value that, we are going to find a way to uh, to guard that. And I'll just say this, I, I have an incredible amount of respect for the intelligence community <laughs> because they keep us and guard us from terrors that would give us heart attacks if we ever knew about them. Um, I would imagine that there are enough infiltrators within the intelligence community and that there are enough long-term government employees who do their jobs outside of the Trump mess and the Trump foolishness and the cronyism, right? That they're going to make sure that that, that that inauguration happens without a hitch. I think the intelligence community plays a huge role in our safety. Um, and I think they're gonna play a huge role, hopefully, um, in the safe um, inauguration of our new president and new vice president. So that, those are my thoughts. I, I, I certainly love your optimism there. And, I, and listen, I have a lot of respect for them as well. I think that they that they do a great that they do a great job. But but somewhere along the lines here, there needs to be a serious investigation as to how this ball was 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 dropped, because um, people knew about this. Right. This is not something that people uh, just decided to do at the, at, the, at, the, at the 11th hour. Right. They had been planning this for for months. Openly uh, on social media. Yeah. Openly on social media. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and to, to, and that's why the, the response to this is just 
flooring, jaw jaw dropping. How did you? How did this happen? Right. So uh, I think it really needs to be to be looked at. Um, do you think that they that they the people who did the sedition, insurrection, att attempted coup, whatever we want to call it? Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that they will ever admit that, that this is really about r racism? I mean, they'll say things like, we want our country back. They'll say things like, um, uh, they, they stole the election. Uh, you know, the election was rigged. But do you think that they'll ever say, hey, listen, we really just want, this is really about race. There's just too many brown people taking over, uh, come to this country. We want, you know, do you ever think that they'll admit that? Um, so that's, that's a little bit, that has a, a sort of complicated answer, right? Because people can't even really admit that that racially motivated um, hate, right, for immigrants and black people and even other groups like, you know, Muslim Americans, people like women, people like Mexican Americans, like people are still not even willing to admit that that's why they voted for and support Trump, right? So so what I say to that is people will all often say to me, well, you know, I, I'm not racist, but I did vote for Trump. And I'm saying, well, you're not racist, but racism wasn't a deal breaker for you. And you're not racist, but you elected one, right? So you don't get to opt out <laughs> of racism. You don't get to opt out. What's their excuse for doing it, though? What's their excuse for, for voting for him? I mean, I haven't had. Well, again, I again, so I, it's a complicated <laughs> answer, right? Because there yeah. are some people who strictly vote Republican irrespective of the candidate. Right. Because they believe in issues like uh, being they're they're pro-life. Um, they are Christian. Right. And they and they see the Republican platform as being more Christian and faith based friendly. Like so I I can understand that people vote Republican for a variety of reasons. But what you don't get to do is to say I voted for Donald Trump and I had no idea he was a racist or I had no idea that that I was also voting for racism, right? You don't get to split your ticket. You don't get to split your ticket. So you can still say, I voted for Donald Trump because he's a Republican and I'm a Republican, I believe in the values, but I knew he was a racist. That's a more honest answer, right? Than just saying, well, I can have my cake and eat it too. No, you can't. You voted for a man who embodies American racism and you don't get to opt out of racism just because you want to cling to a particular set of issues. Right. So so that's a complicated answer. But but the question you asked me, though, was actually quite pointed and I forgot what it was. So can you rephrase it for me? You said you, it was about people who elected Trump. And then no. what was the actual question you asked me? Do you think that they will ever be able to admit that that this oh, storming this of the Capitol was? Okay, yeah. So yeah. So what I was saying is that people can't even admit that the election of Donald Trump was about racism. But here's here's the thing that exhausts uh, people of color and especially black people. White people, especially who are racist, are always looking to be um, exonerated, exculpated, and indemnified from even the accusation of being racist, right? This is why they say ridiculous things to us like, well, my, I have a friend who's Black. Okay, let's unpack that for two seconds. First of all, the fact that you're able to, to befriend a single black person does not forever indemnify you from being racist and and participating in a system of racism. I'm sorry, but that is not your get out of racism free card. That's one. So I have a friend who's back. Number two. Well, and I get this a lot from men, right? I, I get this a lot from men. Well, you know, my wife is uh latina or my wife is black great and and i'm sorry for the frankness of this but sir where a man parks his penis has nothing to do with his politics 
where a man parks his penis has nothing to do. Sir, you can have, you could have, that was Donald Trump's excuse. One of my former girlfriends was part black. What does that mean for your ideology? What does that mean for the person you are, whether you're with or without her? She does not protect you from the racism inside of you. She does not exonerate you from it. She doesn't exculpate you from it. If anything, it demonstrates that, hey, love is love. And apparently we never needed miscegenation laws because anyone can fall in love with anyone. So congratulations for openly loving a woman who was part black, but she didn't do anything to protect you from the worldview you have that is inherently racist. So again, what exhausts black people especially and what exhausts people of color is when white people want to point to every other thing that says, hey, I'm not racist, except for the very racist things they're doing. There was a young lady who tackled a young black man because she accused him in her own mind of stealing a phone that she had priorly left in an Uber. And the very first thing that people say after incidents like that is Karen type incidents, right? Which is what you said last time. The very first they thing is, they, they say is, well, I'm not racist, I'm not racist. Because, and then they come up with a litany of lame excuses for that, that, that are just sort of magically get us to believe that you are not capable of implicit bias and unconscious bias and buying into white racial supremacy, even at, at subconscious levels. So no. There are going to be people <laughs> who, will, who will look at this and say, this was about a fraudulent election. This was about Trump uh, supporters supporting Trump. This, no, this was about white people who are free to be free in America. Everyone is not equally free in this country, and but they are. And this was a show of, of, their, of their white power. I hate to say it. And this is about race because the candidate whom they so, you know, who they so, whom they so love is an emblem of American racism, and they don't get to divorce that fact. So no, I don't think they're going to be able to admit that this was at least racially motivated in terms of what Trump stands for. No, I don't. But um, but you know, but they don't get that option. Hopefully, they'll be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, and their actions will speak for themselves, even with regard to what they did to democracy and to an actual physical edifice and people's lives. So no, I don't. I don't think they're going to be able to make that connection. But I'll, I'll try to help them along the way. <laughs> uh, I, I know you will. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned um, you know where a man parks his penis has nothing to do with his politics. Quite and so frankly. there was, and so there was. There's a lot of peas in that penis and parked and I politics. Like alliteration. And, Sorry, alliteration, right? That's the word, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not that ignorant. I, I read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, there was, there was. I don't know how true this is, but there, I saw a couple of pictures where a guy uh, was a member of the Proud Boys, and mm -hmm. he's actually married to, a, or married to, or had a baby with a black woman. Great. Right? So, and they had a nice big picture of their interracial baby there, and all that kind of stuff. So it's. It, it it is a curious phenomenon when people say I have a black friend or I or I dated an Asian woman before or, and <laughs> and you know so it's it's really it's really curious. Uh, well, so I, a lot of comp. Go ahead. I, I was just gonna say one very brief thing because I know I can be verbose, but um, so I the reason that it's so painful is that racism is not just the mere collection of individual acts of meanness. People in this country have a very topical understanding of what racism is to begin with. 
So as long as white people are able to have that very elementary, rudimentary understanding of racism, they will always be able to come back and say, but I treated this one nice person, well, this one black person or this one person of color nicely. Therefore, ergo, I couldn't possibly be racist. I'm sorry, but racism is individual. It is institutional. It is cultural and it is socio-historical. There are racism is a multi-headed hydra and you don't just get to pick one good black or one good Asian or one good Latinx person and say, here's my black. That's literally what Donald Trump does. I see there's a black in the audience. There's my black. There's my black. There's my get out of racism free card. And the reason that I, that's so offensive is that, it, number one, it assumes that we're stupid. And it assumes that we're just going to say, oh, well, you have the human capacity to have an affinity for a person who's not white. So I guess you couldn't possibly have, you know, committed a racially motivated crime. That's insane. I mean, I didn't study rhetoric or philosophy or logic, but I'm sure that has a name where you just make a ridiculous leap and they have nothing to do with one another. The other thing I'll say, though, that's actually kind of funny and but that still gives me hope is that last year um, I actually uh, like ventured into online dating um, because I'm single. Um, and I obviously very clearly am not white, right? It's clear to people usually that I'm Asian. It's clear that I'm mixed with black. And I always say, here's my multiraciality. This is what it consists of, right? No, I, I, there was a, I cannot tell you the number of white men who would send serious messages and their profile pictures, would they would be wearing Confederate flag hats. They would have on a T-shirt that said, I love Trump or Trump 2020 or put woke to sleep. I, I kid you not. And I was actually confused by it at first. And I thought that I was being trolled. <laughs> and I thought that, you know, I, I thought that they were just doing this to see, you know, because obviously I'm a little bit of a public intellectual. No, these were just white men who were like, no, I think you're pretty and I'm a Christian and I go to church too. And so what, like what that did for me is that it helped me understand that love truly is love, right? People fall in love with one another based on any number of things. And it's not that love is blind because love should, love, love clearly needs to see my skin color. But I just thought it was interesting that they would literally have on like, um, you know, like a Harley Davidson bandana and then like a, literally one guy had a Trump tattoo. And he was like, hey, um, I did you want to meet up sometime? Because I, and they would find all these other interests out of nowhere and say, I actually really want to meet you. Now, they, what they could have been saying is I just want to sleep with you or it could, they could have had some nefarious. I'm, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure that's, that's that didn't happen at all, love. But I, I <laughs> actually learned a lot from that experience. I, I'm not doing online dating anymore for a number of reasons. But I have to tell you, I, I love it when I see people like that, right? With whom I would think, oh my God, like what in the world, what would we ever have in common? What we have in common in our, is our humanity. And they routinely ignore that in other contexts. But when it comes to relationships and when it comes to their wanting to have a romantic relationship with another human being, apparently there's a part of them that can put um, whatever that hate is in a bucket for a minute and sort of step outside themselves and, and, and take advantage of, of the situation. So again, I'm, I'm still hopeful because if I can get deep Trump, Trump tattoo wearing supporters um, to come into my DMs and my inbox and say, hey, you're really beautiful. And I'm saying I'm a diversity and anti-racism consultant. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, that, to me, that's, that's, that's hopeful too. 
but in a, in a different way. But um, I, I think that that just proves my point. I don't think that they. I, I really believe that there's a bifurcation in their brain where they can where they don't see that it's racism. They think that they're losing the country. They they might not be able to take the next step and say losing it to black people or losing it to brown people, but, but they think that they're losing the country. It, the election was stolen. I really think that they are able to to separate their thinking from you being, you know, presenting as a as um, a biracial person, and they don't they don't see that as as you know put woke to sleep. Um, they 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 think that there's a problem with being awake. You know, everything is fine, well, and dandy. Now, you and I would can articulate and say that that it's about racial dominance. I think a lot of it has to do with racial dominance. Not so much that they, in particular, don't like black people or don't like, but they just want to stay right where they are, and they think that if Again, it's the losing the power type of thing that you and I went back and forth about before. It's, it's that's what I think that they're really afraid of. I don't think that they, when we went to a restaurant, they you know get up and do like the nineteen sixties and spit on me and stuff. But but they don't want me to to have certain congressional seats or 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 if I get a co or if I'm admitted to a college, my 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 kid should have been there instead of your kid. You know, it's just being first. It's that pie you talked about before. It's so that's that's what I think. I want to uh, get to a couple of remarks here because I think that they're pretty good here. Um, yeah, yeah. 50, 50 years of dog whistling, just by the fiery phoenix, 50 years of dog whistling has facilitated their racism. Joe Fagan's white racial frame makes it possible to think that they are innocent. I have no idea who Joe Fagan is. Yeah, Joe, Fagan. So Joe Fagan is actually one of my um, research participants. So I, okay. so for my dissertation, I actually interviewed some of the most prominent anti-racists in our country. And Joe Fagan literally wrote the book on white racism. Um, and, and what he talks about when he talks about framing is the way that you frame racism has everything to do with your implication as a part of it, right? If he wrote, he drew a diagram for me and he said, if you can frame racism as an aberrant disease that is outside the foundation of this country, you can say, well, it's an ill. We entertained a peculiar institution for a couple of centuries, but we freed the slaves. We let them vote. They go to school now. It's fine. Right. Like if, if you if your framing of racism is that it is somehow outside how this country was incepted and functions every day then you can say, well, then I too am outside of racism. But when you reframe racism as foundational to this country and as as, as woven, woven into the fabric of this country that no one can escape unless we are literally actively anti-racist, no one is innocent of racism. And that's why the framing of racism is so important. I mean, he, he actually literally explained that to me you know, at a, at a, at a restaurant in North Carolina. And, and I never forgot that. So whoever wrote that comment, I love the fact that they read Joe Fegan, but Joe Fegan is incredible. He's written a number of books, even about the way that, um, you know, chill, young children absorb racism. That's why I'm so hopeful, um, uh, you know, about children not having to do that. We don't have to teach them racism. That is possible. But yeah, Joe Fegan is great. Um, and he literally wrote the book on white racism. I have to look his brother up. Um, he's a he's... white sociologist, and he should still be at a Texas A and M. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I think a Texas A and M. Um, yeah, but he's a sociologist. I still call him brother. He can be white. Yeah, no, I look that brother up. <laughs> yeah. uh, so a couple more people here. Just hello. Yes, the president has pushed the white power agenda. What are, What are your thoughts about that? When people people are people in particular. I've heard black conservatives say that they don't see the racism, they don't hear the racism. I have a friend of mine who says, 
who says that he doesn't see the racism in I don't I mean I had I think I took him out for his birthday. I almost didn't pay for the meal because I was so mad at him for that statement. Um, but but anyway, some people are just saying that he they don't see it. It's not that way. Uh, you you this is your line of work, to, and and the fiery phoenix talk about dog whistling. So just talk about the undertones of of how he has um, stoked these fires uh, that are going on. Yeah, I mean, I think he. I think one. So one of the most respectable things about Donald Trump is what you see is what you get. And I think part of the reason that people wanted him to be president is that he's refreshing in the sense that, no, he's really telling you how he feels. Remember, It is refreshing. Long? It is refreshing. I mean, really? Because that's what, like, you see all these Instagram posts about, like, I don't do fake people. Like, people, we really don't like fake people. At the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I really just want you to tell me the truth. So one of the things that's so refreshing about him, and you have to give him credit, is just his candor, right? His unadulterated, unabashed candor. When he was when he kicked off his candidacy for president, he said everything that many Americans were thinking, which is, listen, we don't want we got a country without borders isn't a country. We got to do something about Mexico. We're going to build a wall. Why? Because they're bringing drugs. They're bringing, uh, you know, they're gangsters. Uh, what are, they're rapists. They're drug dealers. He literally named every negative, every stereotype of the of the mexican american that he envisions and embraces in his head he does not envision a joaquin castro and his family he does not envision these dreamers who literally are working on vaccines to save our lives he's not envisioning latinx attorneys who are fighting for people's justice and rights even as they are undocumented He's not thinking about Mexican-Americans and Latinx folks as human. He's literally seeing them as the criminal stereotype and the transgressor and the border crosser and the illegal immigrant and the alien that people sort of have in their minds, the job stealers. Right? He villainized China. Right? I mean, to this day, he calls it the Chinese virus the Kung flu, right? So Asian people all of a sudden literally are being spat on in the streets, you know, because because the president himself is sanctioning a national dialogue that is rooted in racism. He told, you know, uh, Maxine Waters, I believe, was it Maxine, Auntie Maxine? Yeah, the, the, uh, reclaiming my, yeah, Maxine, he said that she was a low IQ person and that she wasn't very smart. Well, one of the stereotypes of African-Americans is that we are literally intellectually inferior. People actually do think that we have smaller brains and that we are closer to gorillas than humans, right? So. And women, right? Oh, when you're a star, you can do whatever you want. You grab them by their sacred parts. You, I mean, it's a, this man has literally sanctioned xenophobia, racism, homophobia, ableism, um, nationalism, uh, Islamophobia. I, oh my God, it, it's anti-Semitism. Like, I'm sorry, but this man has been speaking in these terms openly. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. There's nothing unequivocal about that language. I'm sorry. So yeah, so they may not see what I'm seeing, but I'm telling you that I'm actively avoiding the news and I'm seeing rampant racism from the president's mouth. Uh, listen, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, the Fiery Phoenix says, OMG, Dr. Jackson, it's Emory. You are one hell of a straight shooter. I will never look at parking the same way again. Parking? So yeah, you talk about parking where a man parks his uh, private. <laughs> yeah. 
I, yeah, I, I used to tell my students that and they would fall out laughing. Yeah. So um, it's, pr it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. No, and it's also true. It's deeply offensive when someone tries to intimate or to in any way try to convince you that because they've either bedded down a woman of color or actively bedding down in a relationship, married, have children. Yeah, the people around you don't have anything to do what's in your heart, right? You are not your lover's keeper and they are not your get out of racism free card. Sorry, where a man parks his penis has nothing to do with his politics, especially his racial politics. Uh, Harriet says uh, Trump has based his uh, complete campaign on racism, uh, supremacy. The red has a strong symbolism of to the historic red shirts. Yeah. yeah. I, one thing that's so scary about Donald Trump is that he idolizes and emulates dictators. Um, uh, to the point, I mean, and, and, and here's the thing, right? Like, I actually really did agree with President Obama era policies about diplomacy, right? And sort of befriending people, maybe even with whom we wouldn't normally befriend, right? Going to places and opening arms and saying, hey, do, do you want to have a relationship that, that's rooted in human rights? No? Okay. You know, like, I, 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 at, the, at the end of the day, I am a pacifist, and I'm a nonviolent person, and I'm a diplomat. Um, so I, I don't know why I don't work in the State Department. But anyway, the point is, um, I actually do believe in reaching out to people and just saying, hey, you know, are, are you ready? Like, I was born in Iran. It's like, hey, Iran, like, okay, yeah, maybe this, okay, this, uh, okay, this Ayatollah? Nope. All right. We'll just wait. You know, I'm super into that. But I think what's interesting about the way Donald Trump conducted himself with, with reaching out to diplomats is that, um, number one, I think they have various connections. I think... Um, I, I am deeply disturbed and not even Russia's interference in our 2016 election election, but in their interference and in their and their most recent hack, which somehow just didn't even really make the radar for most people. Um, I am troubled by countries where people are suppressed. And I really do believe in the spread of American democracy. Right. Like I know I'm super liberal. <laughs> I, I mean, I, but I actually do believe in, in American democracy. I do believe in free and fair uh, elections and I don't believe in monarchies, you know, and I don't believe that people are just sort of born leaders. No, I think you need to get elected <laughs> fairly. And I think you need to, to, to represent the people. So um, I just have real issues with Donald Trump with regard to his emulation of dictators, um, because I think that says everything about how he does not believe in American democracy and really never did. Um, so I'm disturbed by that. Yeah. And we'll, we'll end off in this note. It's been about an hour here. Uh, Donald Trump is uh, evil, and I'm shocked that our leaders won't confront him. I want to talk to, look, just on, on, on the Fiery Phoenix's uh, uh, statement there. The complicity of other people, uh, when they see, as you said, uh, you know, you're optimistic that one day um, when somebody makes a joke in the family that the, that the rest of the family members would, would, would jump on them. And this is what we did not see from our elected leaders, right? We, we, for four years, we saw these people making excuses for him. Uh, they, we had a chance to get him out of office a year ago uh, to impeach him. The Senate refused to do it. Uh, this complicity that we have seen from, from his, number one, from his supporters, many of which obviously stormed the Capitol, the, the intellectual leaders who would not stand up to him when he said all the crazy things that he said. And this this most recent thing with, with 14 days to go is the most that anyone has ever spoken on against him. And we had the chance to get this right and, and, and to get off this path months ago, if not years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So just speak, speak a little bit about how you address those who are complicit in their, in their not speaking out, not only about the president, but about any type of racialized uh, behavior. Yeah, no, I, Desmond Tutu reminds us that if you've chosen neutrality, 
you have chosen the side of the oppressor, right? And then Audre Lorde would say, there's no third space, right? Your silence will not protect you. And it certainly won't protect anyone else. So there's gonna be a day of reckoning for white people and all sorts of people who are standing by and not only sort of, you know, sort of passively not doing anything, but but just actively supporting, right? And being complicit in Trump's behavior and in racism in general, right? You don't get to stand by and do nothing and say that you are you are not a racist, right? Um, there's a, um, a researcher by the name uh, of Beverly Daniel Tatum, and she very clearly in one of her books talks about how you are either actively anti-racist or you are actively racist, right? There's really no in between. So if you are, you know, sort of actively anti-racist, that means that you are always working to dismantle racism. That means you recognize it, you recognize your role in it, your previous complicity in it, your benefit from it, and you are always thinking about how to improve racial conditions for everyone, right? So actively anti-racist means confronting systems of systems of racism, not just being nice to people, not just getting yourself a brown girlfriend. That doesn't count, okay? <laughs> but, but, but I'm gonna fight racism, but get me a brown girlfriend. I'm not getting a brown girlfriend is what I'm saying. Like, that's even more ridiculous, right? <laughs> but the other thing that she says is that, you know, being you, you, there's like no passive racism, right? Passive racism is willful ignorance. And that's when you refuse people who claim colorblindness. I mean, I work with teachers for years who say, I don't see color. I just see children. Well, what do you do with stoplights that you don't literally mean that? What you're trying to say is I'm trying not to actively confront the effect of their color on how society treats them because I don't want to see racism. If you can't see race, you can't see racism. So that's why people hide behind the mantle of colorblindness because it protects them from having to face the racism that goes along with your seeing people's color and that having a negative and derogatory effect. So I just wanna say, I, there's gonna be a reckoning. I, I read today that there's an active campaign to see if, uh, I believe it, I don't know if it's Josh Hawley, but I know Ted Cruz for sure, to see if we can get them disbarred. Um, yeah, I, I heard about Ted Cruz, that, yeah, yeah. I uh, all three of them, right? There's three of them, yeah, just three uh, of them. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah I, I, again, I, I just read it really quickly uh, earlier today, but um, but yeah, that sounds about right. You That's because what you participated in was legal malpractice, um, and I'm loath to call it treason because I'm actually not an attorney or anybody's barrister, so I don't get to just throw words around. But I know an insurrection when I saw one. Um, <laughs> you know an erection? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, that was a slip of the tongue because we were we were talking about politics. That was uh, that was a point. Talk about, about parking I know an insurrection when I see one. Um, and, oh God. Uh, I know that's so funny. Hopefully you edit that out. That's so funny. <laughs> so funny. But, um, but yeah, I mean, but I think that if they're going to be lawyers and lawmakers, uh, elected lawmakers, right, representative democratic lawmakers, I, just, they, I don't know that they deserve to practice anybody's law because they broke the law. They aided and abetted, right? I'm not an attorney, but I know what aiding and abetting is, right? Um, and I know what complicity with uh, sedition is. So uh, I, I have to agree with you. I, I watched a number of their of their speech, especially uh, Ted Cruz's speeches. And uh, it was really literally like, I mean, yeah. like when you think about Donald Trump, literally inciting a public riot. That's that's highly problematic within the confines of federal law. That's yeah. highly problematic. Yeah, I know that I know that. That they're going after Trump for impeachment, but I, 
and I know that I talked about the other three um, as far as disbarring them or, or getting them booted out of Congress, whatever that term is. I don't think that was impeached. I don't think that was a term that they used, but they need to do something because what happened was what happened to me. And I'll let you go on this is, you know, Trump is not the problem. He's a symptom of the problem. Yes. He, he's, he's a symptom of the problem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The problem is that there's many people who can't tell fact from fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they're either deeply rooted in the racism. They don't know fact from fiction. You know, they, 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 they're calling the news fake. They don't know who to believe or where to trust or where to get the information from. Uh, some of the things that I read on Facebook are just like, wow. I mean, these, uh, how, who let you graduate from high school thinking this way? You know, it's just, it's really just crazy. Um, and that's just one social media platform. There's others that are less popular that are, that are growing. A lot of people are going to parlor and in, in other places where they can yeah. speak speak their minds and you know we're not going to be able to shut that that down because there's so many different platforms to, for them to go to okay you can shut off the president's twitter uh and facebook and other things but if they just run to somewhere else then all you do is and this is what i'm afraid of is that people are just going to go back underneath that rock right it was it was the rock was 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 turned over with with the election of obama right that's that you know the 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 racist um uh, groups exploded that at that time they went from like less than a thousand to like three thousand different groups or something like that yeah. um and then you know you get this guy in the office which was in my opinion a reaction to the obama presidency yeah. and, it, and it's just full-blown just anarchy and so now with joe biden maybe some some sense will come back in but you're just going to force these people back underground where they continue to foment and fester and you know and that's that can be just as scary to me you know yeah, well, you know, but can I just make a comment really quickly? And I, and I know it's late, um, um, but let me just say this. Um, part of what is frustrating to me, and this isn't even hypothetical racism, this is actual racism, right? Part of what bothers me is why do we still have a KKK? Why, why does the Ku Klux Klan still exist? Given the terror, given the, what I would call anarchy, given the murder, centuries of open and state-sponsored lynching and torture. What, how are they a domestic terrorist organization? And they have literally placed members in Congress. They have had elected official officials, um, David Duke, right? From So so first of all, that, that's one question I have. Why is there a KKK at all if it's a domestic terrorist organization? And number two, why are the founders of Black Lives Matter and Martin Luther King and members of the Black Panther. Why are they? Why were they ever on federal watch lists? What was so dangerous about pushing for American rights for everybody? Well, what I mean, I mean, if there's one thing that we just saw last week is that we're all living in the United States, but we're not all living in the United States, right? Where some of us are actually dying in the United States. And why is it that every time there's an organization that says, "Hey," There's racial injustice. Please stop killing us. Black Lives Matter. Why are those people on watch lists? Why are they? I mean, I, I just, I, why is, you know, I, I just, I have questions about what it is we value and what it is we find threatening. How do you not find the open plot of the overthrow of the U.S. Capitol building? I won't say the whole government, but apparently someone brought zip ties and they were going to take hostages. So that sounds to me like, I don't know, the makings of a coup. I, I mean, we can use whatever language you want, but how are you able to tolerate and even positively reinforce and promote that when people who like Martin Luther King 
But you're sending letters to him saying you should end your own life. <laughs> like, oh, how is that? I mean, the, the, again, that doesn't qualify as hypothetical racism because that's real. That's something that we know happened and is happening. We know that the KKK continues to exist. How do you go for years burning crosses in people's yards, burning people, right? So much a part of lynching was burning the physical body, right? And passing around souvenirs. I don't know how we have a KKK, but we can't have a Black Lives Matter peaceful protest. Something is wrong there. And that needs to change. And that's why I was calling for legislative reform. And that's why I'm calling for updates to laws and new laws on the books that punish racism and racist crime. Uh, I, I, I can't sum it up any better than that. That is an excellent, excellent question. I mean, the whole COINTELPRO in which they actually engage in assassinations, you know, Fred Hampton. Um, and so, yeah, so um, I'm talking about the government, the US government and, and the police. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, assassinated Fred Hampton. And you're right. We, we can't have this. We can't have that. But, you know, instead of placing um, uh, the KKK and all these other domestic white domestic terrorists on these different watch lists, uh, Congress in, under Jeff Sessions uh, enacted what uh, black extremist groups or something like that. He wanted to have them. So so your question is valid. We know what the answer is. You and I know what the answer is, but but yeah. it's something for them to consider. Uh, mm -hmm. as we go as we go forward so that was that was definitely well summed up you got another paper you're working on so i can have you back on in a couple of months or, or what what's what's I, I always have a paper brewing um okay. uh, to be quite frank um people someone asked me lately the other day like why do you write and i'm like uh to productively work through my pain even if yeah. five people read it <laughs> it's like my public racial diary so so I actually like to keep it positive. Um, so what I'm going to write next is probably the the white infiltrator piece, or just the infiltrator piece, where people can learn how to conscientiously co-opt their power for good, and where people can learn to implant themselves as anti-racist and anti-oppressive operatives wherever they are. I mean, straight like wherever you are, you know what I mean? Like this, we're going to do a sting operation on oppression, and it's going down, right? Like. So I'm, I hope it will appeal um, to men, you know, who want to make society better for women. I hope it will appeal to wealthy and you know middle class people who want to make society better for socioeconomically exploited people. And I hope it will reach the hearts and minds of white people who know that racism is in our midst and they often feel powerless to do anything about it. Um, I hope it empowers people. I hope it gives people hope. And I hope it gives people somewhere to go. Because I'll tell you, I spend most of my days fielding inquiries, you know, from all a number of people saying, where do I do? You know, where do I go? What do I read? What do I do? Well, first of all, you know, as my friend, Dr. Cheryl Matias would say, don't ask me for readings if you're unwilling to learn. So that's it. <laughs> like, please, please don't, you know, ask me for those things if you're not going to be willing to do the work. But I think 99% of people are willing to do the work. Um, and I think that white people are especially primed and ready to do the good work um, of white actors, allies, and accomplices. So I'm gonna write a piece about white infiltration and just about white infiltration, I mean, white uh, infiltration in general. And I'm really hoping that it'll be a guide for people who are outraged by what they see, but they're like, but from where I sit, what do I do? If I'm a student, what do I do? If I'm a doctor, what do I do? If I'm a stay-at-home mom and a domestic engineer, what do I do? So I think I'm gonna write that piece next because I need I need a little hope in my life. <laughs> Very good. Um, I did. I, I was going over the notes here. You gave me actually a lot to read to to, to research myself. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
Uh, you got? Are you good for time? You got a couple minutes? Or? I listen. Oh, okay. I'm already delirious. I I didn't sleep three out of seven days last week. So, oh, wow. okay. so we're good. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll try to finish off on this. I feel like a preacher in church, you know, for my second, <laughs> second closing or whatever. Right, uh, so, uh, racial battle fatigue, you, we talked about that right. at the beginning. Just explain what that is to people and, uh, you know, how are you trying to com com combat that in your own life? Yes. Okay. So I, um, I want to just make sure I credit the African American man, um, who coined that term. Um, so, um, yeah, William Smith. Okay. So sorry, I just had to look that up really quickly, but, um, so racial battle fatigue is actually a term that I learned when I was studying cri uh, critical race theory, um, both in my graduate studies. And then of course on my own throughout the years, it was coined by a black professor by the name of William Smith. I believe he teaches and works at a uh, university of Utah right now, but basically what he talks about is the, is accumulated racial stress. And he talks about how as, as black people, especially, but as people of color, you know, indigenous, just literally Latinx people of color in general tend to experience racial battle fatigue. This is when you see and witness and are party to instances of racism over and over and over in your life. And you are not only traumatized by the original experience, but then you have to explain it to the very people who caused the oppression Right. It's like you have to explain oppression to your oppressor, uh, oppression, oppressor. So, so then you get sort of a re-traumatization because you have to explain to white people that there is racism because they tend to be really sort of racially underdeveloped. And then you get sort of tertiarily traumatized by being by having a white person say to you, but I have a black girlfriend. <laughs> so now you know, not only do I totally not understand what you're saying or they could do what curriculum theorist Michael Apple de, de calls um, sort of a, an enough about you, let's talk about me, right? So, oh yeah, I totally know what it's like to you know be black because my ancestors were immigrants or I'm poor and I, I was raised in Appalachia. So then they sort of try to redirect the conversation. Um, and then we also, we also have the instance of what Dr. Cheryl Matias would call, you know, sort of perverted, um, uh, perverted justice, right? Which is, what, which is what white people are really good at. We saw this a little bit last week. This is when white people or people who cause racism are the victim of the racism they caused, right? So this is, a, you know, the woman uh, who at Lake Merritt who called the police on black folks trying to barbecue. They call her Barbecue Becky, right? This is that woman pictured in the media crying, right? But she caused the original racial incident by calling the police on black people who were trying to legally barbecue in a park in a place that was inhabited by black people since time immemorial, right? So that's 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 it. So when we saw, you know, videos of the white protesters who, excuse me, white terrorists who literally tried to overthrow the US Capitol building saying, "Oh my gosh, something happened and they were mean to me and there was gas involved." You are the victim of the of the drama of the racial drama you caused right a woman who tackles a black man and says i've been victimized i've gotten death threats that white couple that pointed their guns at peaceful passers-by who were black lives matter protesters just sort of literally peacefully walking by their mansion we've gotten death threats and we feel no you are a victim of the racism you caused so you don't get to be victimized by racism that you cause 
while simultaneously denying the actual victimization of black people and people of color who suffer actual and veritable racism. You are not the same, right? So, so racial battle fatigue is really about <clears throat> trying to describe the accumulated racial stress of all of that over the course of a period of time. Um, and, and people you know, who got through 2020 and who were trying to get through the events of last week, we are tired, we are exhausted because we've, we were already battling racial battle fatigue. People forget that before Ahmaud Arbery, we had a spate of white people calling the police on us for everything from selling water to trying to swim at a Hilton hotel at a, at a hotel that we were a guest in, to people trying to barbecue, to the nine-year-old black boy who got called the police, you know, who, who got called the police on by a woman who said she sexually assaulted him by way of a book bag brushing. Out. Like people forget that there was racial battle fatigue before Ahmad Arbery. And I'm just here to remind them. <laughs> That's my job. That's my role. <laughs> well, thank you for the reminder. I, thank you for the reminder. <laughs> and we will definitely end on that note. Thank you so much for, for coming on. When is your website going to be up? When, uh, hopefully soon. I just, I really want a place where I can regularly blog because I've gotten to the point in my public scholarship that people are like, are you going to write an article about this? Or well, tell me the next time you write something because the way you write, I felt that in my soul. So I have a small following and I'm hoping to just sort of get that up so I can at least blog regularly. Um, but I'm going to be working with my web designer. Hopefully it'll be up in the next couple of weeks, um, but it'll be drtahari.com. But for now though, people can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, most importantly, people can find me on Medium because as you were scrolling down earlier, that's where all my writings are. So yeah, Medium for now, but drtahari.com coming soon. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that because Medium, you can only read like four articles a month or something like that. So. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. You can't read all the articles. Yeah. I had no idea. Well, then that, that puts a little fire under my fanny. Oh, um, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I mean, I, I want people to be able to go back and read those over and over. Actually, I didn't know. Yeah. I'm out of articles on the New York Times, so I know what that feels like. <laughs> Uh, you know, I actually subscribed to New York Times and I'm actually going to stop because I was subscribed to the New York Times and to the Washington Post. I'm like, I don't need both of these. So. Oh, but they're so good. They are, they are. They definitely are good. But, you know, it comes down to coin a little bit. And, okay. and I actually like the Washington Post a little bit better. So. Oh, anyway. OK. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoy the Washington Post, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, here we are giving plugs. They better give us some money for this, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I send something to both of them and see if they publish my op-ed. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll see the fruits of this labor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure I'll be talking to you again soon. Uh, and I'm sure something stupid will happen and you'll write about it and I'll give you a call. So <laughs> unfortunately. Unfortunately. Just be just for all that's coming. But no, no, I Captain Hunter, I, I really appreciate your inviting me on. You are you are always asking me these provocative questions and offering the other side, and you always let me get through my hyper verbose rant. So thank you so much. And thank you for supporting my scholarship. I I mean, even yeah. if you read it, it would be fine. But lots of people really find comfort in that article that I wrote about hypothetical racism and some of the others. So I really appreciate your always what? giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Well, it's definitely, we keep talking here. It's definitely spot on. <laughs> it's definitely spot on. And we've all said, we, you know, can't say, we can't talk about all the different memes that you, I'm sure that you've seen, that I've seen on Facebook that said, uh, you know, if, if black people would have done this, uh, we would have been shot, you know, when we exited our cars, you know, and, and I think, uh, and I think that we all know this.
Yeah, you know, so so it's 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 hypothetical, but we we know that we everybody knows that this is the truth. We already know the answer. That's yeah. what makes it traumatic. It's it's hypothetical, but it's also very real. Yeah. That's that's why I wrote it. I mean, and and somebody had to say it. Like somebody had to name this residual trauma, right? I, I know that you know I, I work with a community of scientists, and you know they're just like, hey, you know, on on the day and the day after this happened, they were like, we recognize that this is traumatic. People are going to have a hard time working. It was really sort of a heartfelt message. But I was thinking, but what about the additional layers of stress? Like, let me let me just name this and let me say this because as as a as a multiracial mixed with black employee, you need to know that in addition to just the general and incredul incredulity that I feel as an American citizen and as a voting person, you I I just need you to understand that there's an additional layer of trauma that is characterized by my blackness and by knowing full well that if I had done this, the people who planned it around me, we would have been rounded up in our homes before we could even make it outside, right? I, mean, I think I'm being generous by saying we would have been shot at the Capitol steps bottom. It is generous. We, 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 our we doors would have been, been rounded up summarily, and yeah. you know what I mean, like that. I, yeah, the, yeah, the the plots. You know, if we if we had plot planted, planned, and plotted this yeah. uh, as they did in social media, we our doors would have been kicked in. We we oh. would have been we would have been arrested. You know, weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, or or literally executed on the spot. That's yeah. why I talked about street trials. You can yeah. get you can die on the spot. And your your arresting officer can be your judge, your jury, your prosecutor, your defendant, your all of that, and, and executioner, and you just die, and that's it. Street yeah. justice. Right? And Street then they justice. would they would have looked us up and said saw that we got suspended when we were in the sixth grade, and they would have, you know <laughs> that would have been justification. So crazy, it's crazy, it's absolutely crazy. But thank you so much. Uh, a couple more comments here. Thank you, my man Chris Casey. He's coming on. He's coming on in a couple weeks, aren't you, Chris? Uh, Chris Casey uh, says thank you, Dr. Tahari. Informative as always, Captain. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, and even that Biden said that I didn't, I didn't see that part, but if it's, if he said it, that's, that's great. Uh, it needs to be acknowledged. And again, it needs to be acknowledged by people yeah. who, and listen, we don't want this to happen. I mean, we're not glad about this. We just no. want you to, we just want you to say, just, just say, Hey, listen, you know, there's a little injustice here, you know, um, as, as one meme that I did see say, we don't want you to shoot them. <laughs> you know, we're not, that's not what we're saying. Just don't shoot us. <laughs> and, and Biden did call it a double standard, and okay. I went just a little bit past that and said, mm. "Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. okay." I didn't, I didn't see that part. Okay, well, that's good. At least, at least there's some acknowledgement that this is yes. that this has to change. That this has yes. to change. You know. Yes. So we go from one extreme, what one idiot is calling for it, you know, and then now to a more sane extreme of of Joe Biden, and hopefully yes. we can we can really right this ship here. I'm really yes. hoping pulling for him and, and Kamala and the rest of their uh, um, the rest of their uh, administration to really not only with the, with the racial stuff but just get us back on course with economics and get the, the pandemic and everything else under control you know so and care care about something more than just the stock market i mean it'll be so refreshing to have somebody actually care about the people who live here uh, I don't know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right right <laughs> So anyway, thank you so much, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys so much. We've been on an hour and a half. And Dr. Tahari, my ray of sunshine, thank you so much. I will see you guys uh, next time. Much love and peace. Take care. Bye, everyone. Thank you.